have mercy, look at how the time goes. And welcome everybody to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Today I am speaking with Miss Lori Ann Reinhall. Hi. Hi, John. Good day. Good morning, I should say. It's evening in Norway, morning in Seattle. That's right. Wow. Nine hours difference. That's a a bit of a time difference. (laughs) It is. It's something that we're always dealing with, too, from the West Coast of uh, the United States, that it's great to be online with you like this. Yeah, you know, the, the wonders of technology. You know, mo- most of uh, th- these technological things, are it's, it's, it's witchcraft and wizardry to me. I, I get lost in the technology here, but I do appreciate it when it works well and when I'm a- it makes me able to speak to someone like yourself uh, so many time zones away. But they say the West Coast is the best coast. That's what I think anyway. Well, I guess I'm biased, but I do like it a lot. I was born in Seattle. So I'm wondering if natives left here. <laughs> well, the West Coast is definitely beautiful. There, there's some beautiful uh, spots on the East Coast. Um, I was a truck driver for about 18 months when I was finished in the U.S. Marines. I took a job as a truck driver. And I wasn't very often on the West Coast, but I did. I did get out there and see quite a bit of Washington State. What a beautiful state. Well, it is beautiful, and it's actually a lot like Norway in many ways. We have the mountains, we have the water, we have an archipelago, and I think that's why so many uh, Norwegians and Scandinavians settled here, because they were attracted to the landscape, and they could find work doing things they knew how to do, foresting, fishing. Yeah, you know, in in, uh, a lot of Norwegians, when they think of anything american they think of you know like the dakotas or especially minnesota iowa but but again yes there is that that norwegian connection that norwegian culture if you will uh in seattle on the west coast there but it's not- very strong even even today uh, our fishing industry is really run by norwegian and norwegian immigrants yeah right out of seattle interesting called ballard which was uh settled by many scandinavian Immigrants, and it still has a very strong Nordic influence. That's where our National Nordic Museum is located. Oh, is it? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And there's a a park called Bergen Place Park, hmm. and you you see the connection to uh, Norwegian history uh, even today. It's quite strong. So there's probably a lot of people with the last name of Hansen, Olsen. Uh, oh yes. Yeah. Ah, I love it. I love it. Seattle. What what a town. You know, my um, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Seattle is the music. Uh, of course, Jimi Hendrix back in his day was was out of Seattle. And then since then, in the 90s, you got the grunge movement. Right. Right. But, but what is what is Seattle to you? Well, I, I grew up here, so um my relationship to it is is probably a little uh, deeper than that. <laughs> I think what I love about Seattle, it, it's a natural environment. Um, you wake up in the morning and you look at uh, Mount Rainier, which is our equivalent yeah. to Mount Fuji. And, um, it's, it's a magic mountain somehow. And it really is one of the most beautiful uh, natural phenomena in the entire world. I think the water uh, is a very important part of our lives. 
here I mentioned the fishing industry, but there's also the boating that we have here. Uh, we have more um, small uh, boats per capita than anywhere in the world. So, oh, really? Yeah, that's also something that uh, we have in common with uh, with Norway, I think, where yeah. people are out on the sea quite a lot. And um, I, I, I think we have a wonderful university here, the University of Washington, which is really considered to be one of the finest research institutions in the world. Yeah. And um, I, I'm really uh, happy that we have it here. They're working on a vaccine for COVID-19. And um, I, I, you know, I hope we uh, develop it as quickly as possible, but I hope anyone does um, as <laughs> yeah. we uh, navigate through this crisis. Here. Now, you are the editor-in-chief at the Norwegian-American newspaper. How is the COVID situation affecting your job? Well, I, it, it had a quite a, a big impact, of course, uh, when the, the crisis hit early March. Um, you know, every morning I get up and I read the, the newswire out of Norway, uh, the NTP newswire, and all of a sudden our news made a major shift Uh most of the stories were uh, COVID-19 stories, and that was important information to message out to our readers, both in print and on the website. We have a, a special page with uh, updates from the coronavirus in Norway. Um, but it also shifted our editorial calendar quite significantly. Okay. Because it was very clear early on that uh, most or nearly all events were being canceled here in, Nor- here in Norway and Norway too. Yeah. Um, one big issue that we have is the 17th of May edition. You know, it's very important for um, sure. Norwegian Americans to connect with their heritage at that time. And that entire editorial calendar shifted. Um, we didn't have any live events or parades yeah. to cover. Yeah. And for my non for my non Norwegian listeners, the seventeenth of May is their uh, their Constitution Day here, so it's quite an important day, and it was quite a different uh, atmosphere here in Norway uh, this year for the for May seventeenth. It it was it was different, very different. It was very different. I think in the end it became very meaningful uh, what people did in Norway and here to celebrate the seventeenth of May. It, it it seemed to mean even more than ever somehow that we came together somehow virtually but of course for us uh, at the Norwegian American um, it meant following the news very closely shifting all those stories that we were planning to feature so we could put out a 17th of May issue that uh, really had a lot of meaning for our readers it it filled a gap for many people Uh, it was sad to be at the big parade in Seattle, we have the largest uh, 17th of May celebration outside of Norway, right here in Seattle. Do you really see? And again, yes. I, and I believe that that is some interesting information for most Norwegians, because again, over here, most people, when they think of the America connection, they're thinking of Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Iowa. And I think a right. lot of people jump over the Seattle connection, which to me is rather odd. But for well, some reason... Yes and no. We're out here in the corner uh, of the country, the Pacific Northwest. I think for a long time, Seattle was kind of uh, 
best kept secret. <laughs> I was going to say backwater, but I think it, best kept secret is a better way of uh, saying it. And because um, those Minnesotans are getting a little cocky, they think they have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and and um, Seattle really wasn't on the map so much for many Europeans. Uh, we're in Washington State, and I noticed when I was younger, when I would travel to Scandinavia to visit my relatives, or uh, later on when I studied in Europe, um, you'd say, I'm from Washington, and they immediately associate it with Washington, D.C., DC. the capital yeah. of the United States, which, of course, is on the East Coast, on the other side of the country, and you have to say, no, no, not that. Yeah. Washington, the Washington that's right under Canada. <laughs> that uh, Washington. <laughs> California, sort of place for them. But since that time, a lot of things have happened in Seattle to put it on the map. Of course, we always had Boeing at that time, after the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, so you could mention Boeing, and that would, you know, make a connection. But yeah. now we have so many big companies here that are known worldwide. It, we're home to Microsoft, for example. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a brand. That's a company that everyone knows. Everyone knows. Yeah. Most people have daily interactions with Microsoft somehow on their computers. Uh, even if they're using a Mac, they're running office. So that, that helps people make a connection. We have Amazon, uh, which is, you know, an international company and um, Starbucks. Uh, a lot of people can relate to a good cup of coffee and say, yes, Starbucks, that's a Seattle company. And there's many, many companies in biotech. And we really are um, a hub for innovation here in Seattle. What do you think the reason is for that gathering of all of these large, well-known international companies in Seattle? Why, why Seattle? Well, I... I think it may have something to do with education. As I mentioned, we have this incredible university here, the University of Washington, which is number one in many fields. Uh, and our climate, too, is, uh, it's kind of Norwegian. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, quite, it's quite similar to, uh, to Bergen in, the, in Western Norway. It's, it's interesting that Bergen is a sister city to yeah. Seattle. They've got the rain in common. And I think when you have that kind of climate, uh, people are indoors uh, quite a bit for large parts of the year. And um, it's kind of a bookish place. People read a lot yeah. here in Seattle. So that may have something to do with it. It could just be coincidence uh there's not very many Bill Gates that come along, actually, no. or Wallace. So um, <laughs> he was born here, too, and uh, decided to locate his company here. And uh, it spun off a lot of other software companies sure. over the decades. And um, so we're, we're kind of... Um, the Silicon Valley of the Pacific Northwest. So you, as the editor-in-chief of the Norwegian-American newspaper... Um, you, you wake up in the morning and you check the news wire for news coming out of Norway. What is it that catches your eye? What kind of news, uh, you know, what is it that happens here that interests you as an editor in chief? 
Well, I, I think there's a number of things uh, that would interest me. Of course, we, we're really kind of focusing to a certain audience of um, Norwegian Americans, people who have connections to Nor- Norway, but also business people who want to know what's going on in Norway, innovations, uh, maybe any big social issues uh, where we could leverage knowledge or learning. And Norway is also a very, very uh, rich country when it comes to the arts and culture. So anything that I, I think will grab our readers' attention and, and really enrich their lives somehow. That's interesting you mentioned the arts and culture. Um, as a musician myself, um, and, and as a, as a stand-up comedian, you know, I keep my eye on what's happening within the culture world here in Norway. And I, and I think we artists, we performers here in Norway, we, we we're a little spoiled because, you know, every year there comes an announcement from the Norwegian government about, um, the the raising or the lowering of government funds to support artists you know writers musicians different uh different uh stipends and funds that can be put out there and if i go back you know i've been here for for almost 20 years but if i go back to when i was living in the states i never really heard about any kind of government support no 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 drastic or vast uh, government support of music and, and, and the arts and whatnot, and whatnot. Whereas here in Norway, it's common. That's what they do, and that's what they've been doing for quite some time. Um, do you think that the? Well, let me ask you. What What do you think is the reason for there not being the same kind of support for for artists in uh, America as it is here in Norway? Well, I. <laughs> That's that's a big question. It we, is. It is because we have support through the National Endowment for the Humanities, and there's been a lot of concern about cuts being made there because they do provide money to major museums and orchestras and uh, artists. And then locally, I know here in Seattle, the city of Seattle has a, a, a fund for artists. And Isn't there a shift from? A, a federal uh, funding of the arts isn't it been shifted now to the state and local level? That's been my understanding since the current administration came in. Yes, yes, that 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 is uh, my understanding as well. And right now here in Seattle, we have a lot of concern about what will happen to support for the arts because of budget crisis uh, that we're facing with the coronavirus. Yeah, as well as other issues going on in the city, the the civil unrest that we've experienced, um, the the cost of rebuilding the city to some extent, and unfortunately, we also had a major bridge uh, in our city. Uh, it has had to be closed, and it will have oh. to be rebuilt for billions and billions of dollars. And it's 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 actually a, a big crisis for us now are are we talking about a bridge that's been damaged from a storm or is it just old and in disrepair what what happened to this bridge uh that's that's being investigated uh looks like there were construction issues with it but it connects uh a major part of the city with the city center 
uh, and um, we're, we're just concerned about budget problems in the city right now. Uh, the main stress factor is the coronavirus. Um, unemployment in the state of Washington is has skyrocketed during the crisis. Yeah, you know, social issues connected to it. So we have a lot of challenges, and unfortunately, the arts tend to go first. Yeah, in the United States, but uh, there's those of us who are involved uh, in the arts. Uh, myself uh, through journalism, but also I have musical interests that I produce concerts. Uh, oh, do you? I do. Yeah, and so I'm wondering, you know, what what will happen? We're all wondering. Uh, the support has been quite strong uh, over the past few decades. The city of Seattle donates uh, 1% of its budget to public art, for example. Okay. But uh, I believe the private sectors are going to have to fill the gap. Uh, well, I don't see any more federal support on the way. It seems like the president has been taking every opportunity to really bash uh, the governor of Washington and just the entire situation in Seattle is a topic of uh, it, it seems as if the president is using Seattle as a talking point for all things negative. Um, I would imagine there's I, I would imagine when it comes to any kind of federal funding or federal support in anything that 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 Washington state or Seattle specifically needs it's going to be a trickle down effect in other words when the president is, seems to, seems to have some sort of I don't know a vendetta or some sort of of um uh, negative feelings towards uh, the governor. That's not going to help the state when it comes to getting um, any necessary federal funding. Right. I think they spent some animosity there, but uh, we're not letting us it bother us uh, too much. You know, it's mm -hmm. business as usual. We're doing what we think is right. I think the coronavirus crisis has been handled very well in this state compared to many other states. Uh, it's hard to say what the various factors are that influence uh, why certain areas are affected worse than others. We were hit early on. Yes, uh, yeah. Here in Washington State, uh, and there were some very uh, strong measures put in place uh, to curb the spread. And people were fairly people were fairly accepting of those measures, were they not? Uh, in most of the state. Uh, Seattle is a large metropolitan area, so you have uh, millions of people living close to each other. And I think we realize the importance of uh, the lockdown and uh, stopping the spread of the virus. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it amazing how some areas quite readily and easily accept, for example, having to wear a mask. And then you see other areas, other cities and states that are dead set against it. I saw on the news today that, uh, I don't know if you knew, but the mayor of Atlanta had uh, signed an executive order making it mandatory for masks in public in Atlanta. And then immediately the governor of Georgia came in and is suing them in in uh, in state court to make it illegal for any mayor in Georgia to mandate masks. 
Very interesting. It's, it's perplexing. It's very perplexing. I, I think it goes back to our, our history. This is a country of individualism, but individualism can be confused with public safety somehow. Um, here in Washington, we've all adopted wearing masks with, with a few exceptions. There's been some outliers, but um, sure, sure. we realize that if this has got to be a collective effort uh, for everyone to to participate in this uh, so we could all stay healthy and carry on and um, rebuild our economy as well. And um, it's, it's taking some sacrifices, of course, yeah. but I, I, I think here in the Seattle area, we're, we're realizing um, we have to make these sacrifices for ourselves and for, for each other. Uh, unfortunately, I think the lack of, uh, unified messaging in the country mm. has led to a lot of this dissent. And, um, yeah, and therein lies the greatest difference between the American response to COVID-19 and the Norwegian response. We had a, we have a r- rather unified government body uh, at the top level here in Norway who stuck together when it came to messaging. And when you have that unity from the top, that unity bleeds down to the citizenry. Yes. And then and then you take the other side of it and you see that there's chaos at the top in the United States when it comes to the messaging. You know, um, the White House says this, but the CDC says that. Um, it's, it's very unfortunate. I, I will say, though, I think the countries are very different. Uh, the societies are structured very differently. The demographics of the countries are different, but it's it's a, a huge challenge it for is. us in the United States right now. It is. Um, I'm just afraid that people are going to patriot themselves to death <laughs> back home. Uh, you know, you know um, I, I look at it more as a public health issue when it comes to masks and social distancing, distancing and whatnot. But then you do have a demographic who doesn't look at it as a public health situation. They look at it as a human rights issue or a, uh, or, or, or a question of patriotism or a political right. statement. And that, that is the Americanness of that situation that just breaks my heart to be an expat. And I sit here and I see how well things are going here. And then I see how well it is not going back home. It breaks my heart. It really does. Well, it's, it is a uh, very unfortunate that the, the health uh, crisis has been politicized to the way yeah. it has. Um, but I, I'm still hopeful that we will get through this. Uh, there's a lot of good people uh, who are supporting the efforts. Uh, what I think is really great about this country is uh, the spirit of volunteerism and philanthropy. That's mm-hmm. still very strong. And like I said, in regards to the arts, for example, I, I do believe that they will, those who are able to will will step forth and try to fill the gap. So you, you mentioned, uh, I want to go back to the arts again. You mentioned that you, did you say you produce concerts or you're a concert arranger or? Um, yes, uh, I participate in them too. Or are you a musician? 
Well, that's kind of a story. I, I've always been a musical. I did major music, but I play the piano and the accordion and sing. And I I actually had was in an act for a few years with a friend of mine who uh, lived in Norway for 18 years. Oh. We, we performed um, primarily immigrant music together. Now, when you say immigrant music, what what is a what is an example of immigrant music? Well, I you know they they brought their music with them when they came to the America, and um, some music was written along the journeys, different types of sea shanties, and then when they came to this country in the nineteen twenties, there was uh, Scandinavian American vaudeville genre oh. that developed. Okay. And, uh, then uh, we also uh, researched songs written about Scandinavian immigrants into Pan Alley, and those can be quite comical. Wow, <laughs> interesting. The, the naive, uh, yeah, blue-eyed. <laughs> yeah, the bl- the blue eyed Ola who uh, who just doesn't yeah. know anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, holy yumpin' yiminy. <laughs> <laughs> holy yumpin' yiminy, yeah. <laughs> and then there were a number of songs written in nostalgia about the old country. Kandiglama gamla norgad, bondoms yemad. It really is a lot of fun, and it, it was especially fun for us uh, being the descendants of uh, Scandinavian immigrants to uh, research all of this music. So yeah. we we went out and toured with that for a number of years and recorded a CD and really we had a great time doing that. Did you tour within the state of Washington or were you regional, and national? Yeah, uh, he was living in Drammen at the time. Were you living now? Yeah. And we also had a number of performances in Norway, probably the most exciting one was at the big American Fourth uh, of July celebration in Frogner Park. Ah, yes, every year, yeah. Yeah, every year except this past. Except year. for this past, yeah. Now, what what time period are we talking about? How long ago was it that you were doing this uh, touring? Two thousand ten, two thousand eleven. Um, okay. Reunited last year in the Midwest. Uh, he's moved back to Indiana, where he's from. Okay. Um, so, but it, it just really was fun to get out there and meet people and share this music. And yeah. um, I, I do think the story of the immigration is still very, very uh, important to both Norwegians and Americans, Scandinavian Americans. Um, there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between the, what's going on in our countries today. It's easy to forget that our grandparents and our parents, to some extent, came to the United States with nothing in many cases. And they were able to and it, build up lives for themselves. And we need to remember that when we look at the immigrants coming to our countries today, that they're facing the same situation that that our um, parents and grandparents. uh, That's very good to hear you say that. I believe that that is a fact that a lot of Norwegians here forget. And then a lot of uh, United States citizens as well uh, 
forget that uh, they they especially the Norwegians uh, who live in the in the in the, uh, the United States now they cannot forget that maybe one generation ago they were the foreigner who was struggling they were the foreigner who had to learn a new language they were the foreigner that had to find their way in a new land and it's i don't know it's just it's it's quite interesting to just kind of sit back and see who's pointing their finger and judging without realizing their own history right i i think uh with what's going on right now with discussions of uh, white privilege, which definitely exists, um, even though our ancestors were white, they also faced a lot of prejudices and challenges coming to this country. Uh, I recently uh, interviewed someone who was putting on a production of Babette's Feast, uh, the famous uh, story by Isak Dinesen, a theatrical production. And um, she said it was such a challenge to work with the younger actors because they really didn't understand this tension between the the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics. Yeah. And uh, it's not a, so much of an issue in this country today if you're a Catholic or a Protestant. No. But it was even 50 years ago. Yeah. If you yeah you can uh, I can remember learning about. Um, uh, president Kennedy, when he was uh, in the running to be uh, president before he was elected, people just had a conniption because he was a Catholic. Right, and and, and we and would, and again, we wouldn't think. Born in nineteen eighty or nineteen ninety, you don't yeah. have any uh, yeah. experience of that. And yeah. I, I remember it. I was a child at the time. I was very, very young at the time, but it was a huge milestone. And yeah. It's the same with our parents. My my mother was born in this country. Uh, both of her parents were Swedish. And, you know, you always get the question, well, why didn't they teach you Swedish? And she said, well, they, they tried in many ways. But uh, she said the pressure to assimilate and to conform was yeah. so strong. And there was actually a lot of social pressure not to learn your parents language and there were even political reasons uh connected to it with after the first world war it sure was sure considered un-american so they dealt with all kinds of challenges themselves and i think these are things we have to remember when we look at the challenges that our immigrants face yeah. today in the united states of course it's it's the um latinos uh, there's uh, here in Seattle we have a lot of uh, refugees from Somalia yeah. in Ethiopia they face a new set of challenges but they're not so different from what earlier generations yeah this the struggles of immigrants it seems to be fairly universal regardless of which country uh, they immigrate to I guess I, I look at my own situation as an American in Norway, um, and the, the, the issues that I've had, the confrontations that I've had, the challenges that I've had, you know, no, nothing has kept me down. I'm doing quite well. Uh, you know, everything is fine. But I look at other immigrants here in Norway who maybe uh, uh, don't come from a Western country. 
uh, and maybe they've struggled with learning Norwegian. Maybe they have some sort of trauma from from war or, or, or some sort of abuse in their home country. And then they come here to Norway and then they meet the same challenges that I've met and they not they may not be as capable of overcoming those challenges because they have a certain amount of baggage. Right. And then or- I and I try to transfer that thought to immigrants in the United States. You know, it's, I th- in other words, I guess it's one thing if uh, someone from Great Britain immigrates to the United States, and it's something else if someone from Somalia or Syria immigrates to the United States. It's a totally different set. Uh, or Actually, it, it may be the same challenges, but again, they may not be equally equipped to handle those challenges depending on where they came from and what their history is there. That that that's so true. There's uh, you know factors of religion, um, yeah. the role of women uh, that they have in their home countries, and the whole new uh, set of rules in their uh, new country. Uh, I think it's it's uh, many many uh, challenges an immigrant has to overcome. Yeah. There's the whole uh, challenge of the language as well. I think if you speak English. In Norway, you're going to be quite functional from the outset on that level. Uh, but learning Norwegian to get over that threshold to be fluent in the language and feel like you could converse with people without too much effort. Yeah. Those are all challenges. Uh, sure. Uh, I've, I've always felt that it's extremely difficult to get to know Norwegians well. And I felt from day one that it was imperative that I learn Norwegian. Um, Of course, most of them speak English, but I wanted to remove anything that could be a hindrance to me, uh, you know, getting the job I want or having the social life that I wanted. And and to me, the key to, to removing all hindrance was learning the language. I I think it's very, very important. Uh, I've I'm very interested in language. I studied languages, and I think that it really is your key to to understanding a, a society and a culture. Yeah, uh, you'll never really get into it in the same way if you're not fluent in the language. It makes a difference. It really does. Yeah. How How's your Norwegian? Uh, it's it's quite good. It, it tends to sound a. Uh, very Swedish, however. <laughs> <laughs> I'm married to a Swede, and uh, I studied all of the Scandinavian languages. I have my degrees in languages. Um, but the, the Scandinavian languages are so similar that if yeah. you become very fluent in one, it's quite easy to read and understand and even converse. But um, Swedish, I have to admit, is really my strongest language. Am I married to a Swede? Sure, uh, yeah. Now I can. I'm Norwegian, and I maybe I should kind of tell the story how I got into that. I, yeah, would um, you please? Yeah. Well, I've I've always been around many Norwegian people growing up here in Seattle and in the area I lived in. Um, the whole Ballard community, which I did not live in Ballard, but I lived adjacent to it, right across the water. Uh, even in the 1960s, you heard Norwegians spoken in the streets there. Oh. 
Yeah. It was a wave of immigration in the late 50s or right after the war into the 1960s. And um, my grandmother's next door neighbor was Norwegian. I was always at her house because I, I loved her krumkaka. And, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I went, I decided to spend a year abroad when I was a teenager, and I went to a school on the west coast of Sweden outside of Gothenburg. And one reason why I wanted to go to the school was to um, learn uh, folk music and okay. folk culture. And I had a music teacher there, and her name was Helga Freeman, and she was Norwegian, and she was very proud of it. And uh, she got me singing Edvard Grieg oh. right from the start. And yes. uh, I became very enamored in Grieg's music. I, I had played Grieg on the piano as a child. In fact, my first recital piece was uh, Elephant Tance by, by Grieg. And so she said, wow, I've never had a student that loves Edvard Grieg the way you do. And... Um, we became such close friends, um, even though there was this enormous age difference between us. And um, I felt like she adopted me. I felt very much at home there. We traveled together and um, kept in touch until uh, she wasn't with us any longer. Uh, I was thrilled to go to her 100th birthday. Uh, you said 100th birthday? 100th. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. She, she lived to be 104 years old. Much oh. my happiness. And um, yes. we become close friends with the family as well. And um, she really got me immersed in Norwegian culture. And uh, so I went back and finished my degree in Scandinavian languages and literature at the University of Washington. And also went on to graduate studies at UCLA. So my focus really was on both uh, Swedish and Norwegian literature with a little bit of Danish thrown in. And um, I, I will have to admit, I, I think Ibsen is a much better playwright than Strindberg. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Loyalty. <laughs> um, let me ask you this then. Okay, so you have a educational background in Scandinavian languages and what, literature, and literature. <clears throat> what is it that led you to journalism well that's 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 an interesting story too um when i was in high school i was really really interested in journalism and i wrote uh for the high school newspaper i had an excellent teacher there and um I thought I was just primed to become editor-in-chief of this high school newspaper and um, was just in utter shock when I wasn't. Oh. <laughs> I, you know, this was a long time ago. This was in the early 1970s. And so I went in and I said, you know, what, what happened? And he, and he said, well, you know, I just don't think this is a good profession for young women. Oh, you're yeah. kidding me. I'm not kidding. What a, what a caveman. <laughs> and, you know, these are different times that I was studying, and I thought, oh, you know, 
not a good choice. We should. Well, how, how did you take it when he said that to you? I, I didn't take it great. But uh, in retrospect, I mean, these days someone would probably be, be fired for. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So I kind of moved in different directions. I, I thought, well, I got to the university and I like languages and literature. So I, I went that route and um, I thought, well, you know, I can still, I, I like, I like words a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I, my father always said, well, if you're good at writing, if you have a good command of the English language, you're going to do very well in life. And that kind of stuck with me. Uh, at some That's very point. true. That's very true. And uh, so I, I went the literature route. I was really on a track to become a, a professor. I, I had taught in teaching assistant positions or even in high school for a number of years. Yeah. And um, I was working on my PhD and um, I got the opportunity. Somebody called me up and said, can you work on a project? At Microsoft for a couple of weeks. They need someone who's a, a linguist uh, who understands uh, the structure of the language and syntax and so forth. It was for a product called Microsoft Phone that never released. It was an early um, speech-to-text application. Oh, okay. You know, what year was this? Oh, that was 1995, I believe. Okay. Wow, I'm just trying to think speech to text in 1995. Yeah, wow. it was early on. Yeah. So little did I know that I would go out there for two weeks and hang around the place for over 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I was working, and then a couple weeks later, they, they got a phone call, and the program manager said, you seem like a very organized person. Would you want to come out and... Uh, work on uh, the Web Essentials team, and I thought, Web Essentials, you know, I barely know what the internet yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but um, it had to do with localization, adapting the programs to uh, other languages. So I thought, yeah, I'm not going to pass up an opportunity like that. The uh, job market for academics was sketchy at most at the time, and my parents were getting older, and I thought, well, I don't really know if I want to relocate to another city so and you know it was a great opportunity so I went and took it but that's where I ended up I ended up in web publishing and localization for uh, over 20 years oh wow vendors that work for Microsoft Um, so you got in at the pretty much at the ground level of some new and innovative technology for it was fun yeah yeah um and it, it really was kind of an interesting combination of different skills that I had. I think it was a great career to have, um, intensive. Um, I never thought I would be learning coding, for example, which yeah. I, I did learn some coding because you have to be able to talk to the developers and um, actually go in and manipulate the code sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... But it was it was exciting. It was really exciting, and um, I still look back and I, it's fascinating to me that I got to work on programs like Outlook and Hotmail and um, the Microsoft Office Suite, and then uh, later on MSN products. And um, 
followed the whole developments of that industry. So it, it really, really dovetailed into my experience translating as well. And um, it's it's quite interesting how everything you learn in life converges. Well, yeah, exactly, because that's such a, that is a very steep dive or steep ascension, whatever you want, steep curve from, you know, starting out with this, this, this love for, for Scandinavian languages. And then all of a sudden you're in at the ground level at Microsoft. Yes. And then from that... to that uh, my knowledge of German actually was quite key in getting that job. I also studied the German language uh, kind of by fluke as well. <laughs> <laughs> I needed to pass a graduate exam to get my um, degree. You have to be proficient in several languages to get a humanities degree. So I took a summer course in Austria uh, for a month and ended up staying there for almost four years. Wow, interesting. (laughs) And at that time, German was one of the pilot languages at Microsoft. German and Japanese, of course, now they localize into 40-plus languages. It's amazing. And I heard that recently, by the way, that there's some discussions going on about... um, Localizing into Nidorsk. Ah, okay. Yeah. The Minister of Culture is engaged in discussions with them because it's very important, of course, for Norway that um, Nidorsk is supported. Yeah, absolutely. But I do. Do you think Nidorsk will ever die out? A lot of people yeah. seem. I I don't see that it will anytime soon. I mean, people speak what they speak, and people are speaking Nidorsk. I don't. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I. I think it's a beautiful language. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, poetic. Yes, it is. Yeah. It has a very uh, great literary tradition, and if you go to Western Norway, where I frequently go, or I like to go as 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 much as I can, uh, I know too many people who speak it. And yeah. Yeah. I think they're going to defend it to the very end. <laughs> <laughs> and it's important. I mean, that people ask me, like, what is this, you know, Nienorsch? What, what is this all about? And, you know, you explain the history of it with, with Ivar Olsen and how it developed during the National Romantic period or, or became a language. Yeah. And it's so rooted in the Norwegian national identity. Yes, it is. Now. Yeah. I don't see how that would ever die out. And I, I mean, I certainly hope that wouldn't happen. And I, as I said, I think every new language you learn, be it uh, Nidorsk if, or, if, or if it's uh, learning Norwegian, if you're an American or whatever uh, language it might be, it just opens up a whole new uh, perspective on life for you. Absolutely. I, um, see, you fascinate me. People like you fascinate me. People who can carry so many languages in their head. I seem to have place for two 
English and then one more language. I lived in uh, Japan. I was on Okinawa, Japan for a little over three years when I was in the United States Marines. And while I was there, I learned Japanese. And then I... Well, before, let me go back. Before that, in high school, I learned Spanish, and I was pretty good at it, pretty fluent. But then when I went to Okinawa and started learning Japanese, I, the, the, as I learned Japanese, I lost my Spanish. And then when I came home from Okinawa, Japan, and started working as a police officer in the Chicago uh, area, I picked up my Spanish again, of course, with many, many Latin American people who were in the Chicago area. But as I picked my Spanish up again, I lost my Japanese. And then when I moved to Norway, as I started to learn Norwegian, I lost my Spanish. So it seems like I only have place in my mind for, for two languages, English and then one more. And I always lose the previous language that I knew. Well, I suspect if you were to go back to Japan, it would come back to you rather quickly. I think it, yeah, it, it's there. You know, when I watch TV and, and, and someone says something in Japanese in a film or something, I can pick up on what they're saying. And, and, and same thing with Spanish. If I hear Spanish on, on television or, or in the streets or whatever, I can start to pick up, you know, some words and phrases, but uh, it just it just seems like I cannot keep that fluency. As I learn a new language, I lose the old one. Well, I so you fascinate probably, me. <laughs> well, I, I guess it just really depends how active you are and keeping it alive. And like I, I said, I suspect if you were to return to those places, it would come back to you rather quickly. Yeah. Um, Probably. You know, I, it's, it's there. That, it's there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's there, I'm sure. And, uh, everybody's different, I think. I think it depends how old you were when you learned a language sometimes. And uh, it can also have to do with attitude uh, towards a language. Uh, yeah. If you really love something, if you love a culture, you're going to be very motivated to learn the language. And well, I love, I love being able, I love being able to speak Norwegian. I think it's a beautiful language. I was um, fortunate enough to be exposed to three different dialects of Norwegian from day one. My father-in-law was from Finnmark. My mother-in-law was from Svelgen in Vestlanda, so she spoke Ninosk. And then my wife spoke pretty much the local Drammenhudem dialect. So I heard all three of these different dialects of Norwegian from day one. And I think that conditioned my ear to, to pick up on the differences in the dialects and be able to understand them. Because I know a lot of Americans get thoroughly confused the minute they come across a new dialect of Norwegian. Right. And, and you're musical, and I, I'm musical as well. I think that helps to some extent yeah. in um, picking up the, the harmony and the intonation of a language. I probably should tell you a little bit how I got to the Norwegian 
American newspaper. Yeah, we got sidetracked. I wanted to follow your journey and how do you how you got into journalism. So if you could start yeah. there. Now you 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 studied it, uh, or you were involved in your school newspaper, and then you got off into this different track. You know, into uh, to, to Microsoft and whatnot. And then after that, what did you do to get into the journalism field? Well, I always did a lot of writing and um, also in conjunction with the volunteer work that I've done. Um, I have the honor and the pleasure of being the president of the Seattle Bergen Sister City Association. So I would write articles to promote that. Um, and And the Northwest Edvard Greek Society as well. I'm the vice president of that. And... You're very so active. I, I, I got, I would started writing uh, articles for the Norwegian American. And then when I uh, thought I would retire from software at age 60, they, they needed someone to help out on the paper. And I thought, well, you know, I, that, that could be fun. And I, I knew that I had the skill set required to do that. So yeah. it came on part time and then, um, few years later now I'm serving as editor-in-chief so it's really interesting these uh different paths that life takes you and I kind of felt like I did the full circle because I really love what I'm doing right now and I I guess what I love the most about it is all the doors it's opened for me uh I get to meet so many interesting people serving in this position like i'm talking to you now i don't know how that would have been possible otherwise i was just gonna say i i can uh i i totally understand that that there's a big wow factor whenever you get into any kind of journalism and i know being a podcaster isn't journalism but it's maybe a distant cousin to journalism and it's that thing where you get to meet people i had uh i've had so many good experiences talking with people that i otherwise never would have had an opportunity to talk with and that, that alone yeah. that alone gives such a feeling of accomplishment uh it does. and you make friends as yeah, well yeah uh, you make friends colleagues partners uh for your uh, endeavors. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to network. Uh, You know, I've run into people who have such uh, similar ideas or an interesting background that I can question them about and then apply those lessons, if you will, to my own life and my own career and, and, uh, and, and, you know, forge my way through life with a little bit more information based upon what I learned from all of, the, all of these people who have been my guest on the podcast. And I'm sure that's a very similar thing to what you're experiencing in the journalism field. It is. Uh, there's people that reach out to us here at the newspaper because they want their stories covered. So you make a lot of contacts that way. We have an incredible team of many volunteer writers who are very, very talented people. And it's, it's been, you know, an incredible joy to work with them. But also, um, since this paper has been in existence since 1889, in some form or another, um, at one time there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, Norwegian papers in North America. It was how the immigrants communicated with one another. It was what held their communities 
together. But of course, that changed over time. They started learning English, and yeah, uh, one by one, the papers disappeared. But this one somehow has has endured. You said since eighteen eighty nine. Eighteen eighty nine. It's from a consolidation or an um, amalgamation of all of these uh, papers that once existed, and now it is the last and only Norwegian American newspaper left in the country, um, and it covers the entire uh, country as well, with a lot of emphasis on the areas where the immigrants were, like Minnesota, you mentioned, yeah. New York, and and the west coast do you feel do you feel a certain amount of pressure uh being the only or the la- the last of these new pa- newspapers do you feel any pressure to perform do you feel any anxiety about that i would very much like to see this paper uh endure um mm. i still think it has an important role to play for um Norwegian Americans and their their children and grandchildren, I would hate to see their connection to their heritage lost because I think it's very enriching. Absolutely. Also, I mean, we have a twofold mission. One is to connect people to their heritage and to enrich them in terms of uh, the customs that they've inherited, the history and so on and so forth, but also to build a bridge to contemporary Norway, um, uh, to learn about what's going on in Norway today, because that's, that is a a treasure chest of information, ideas. And while, as I mentioned, the societies are quite different, there's a lot that could be learned and a lot that could be shared. Yeah. And, um, I do think this paper is, is very good PR for Norway. Absolutely, I think it's very. Uh, I think it's very important that this paper continues doing what it's doing. It's it's uh, important for the uh, Americans of Norwegian descent who are there in in the United States, but I also think that your newspaper can be a a rather strong source of pride for Norwegians here in Norway. Um, Norwegians have this thing where they are quite aware of their position in the world. Um, uh, they're, they're proud to export anything about their culture here. So for them to know that there is a newspaper in the U.S. that is focused on all things Norwegian, I think that's, uh, that's a source of pride for Norwegians over here. Yes, and I do think it is. Uh, I've been so impressed and so amazed uh, when I've reached out to many of these very prominent Norwegians that they're so willing to give me the time to interview them. Uh, They're quite excited about it. I mean, the ambassador to the United States Court of Oath, he's been very supportive of us. There's been people at the United Nations uh, who have supported it. I've Talked with celebrities like Sissa Shirkebud, yeah. um, Leif Uba and um, they're they're really excited when they hear about this. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to talk to, to Sissa Shirkebud. It's like, oh, of course I want to talk to you. And, oh. I will I will love you forever if you could get me 
uh, a podcast episode was with uh, Lars Hovard Hergen from the Hellbillies, the guitars for the Hellbillies. <laughs> if you could get him to come on my podcast, you and I will be friends forever. We'll, we'll have to talk about that. So, <laughs> so, I, so I, I'm just, um, I'm so impressed by these people. Uh, of course, I, 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 I think that it's wonderful that they're so generous to support the paper, but also, I, I just think that they're so enormously proud of their country. They are, yeah. Norway, and it's just. It's just a wonderful thing to experience. It is quite amazing, you know. And 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 we talked a little bit about their seventeenth of May celebration. That's when you really see how proud Norwegians are of their country. It's it's a um, it's not this this rabid fireworks and military parade type of patriotism and 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 pride it's not that it's something different that is much more controlled much more subdued and yet it burns very brightly it does it's, it's different very it's very norwegian and i don't think you're going to see that in any other country it's very specific to Norway, that type of pride that they have for their nation. I, I tease them a lot about it. I tease my wife about it. Uh, I put it into my stand-up routine, uh, making fun of it. But it really is a beautiful thing to see. It's very unique. It's fantastic. And I think for Norwegian-Americans uh, here in the Seattle area, the 17th of May is just as important as the 4th of July, maybe more. I would say more so. <laughs> Yeah. I, I would say more so. There is, there is this. Thing, I don't know. You, you, when when it's the Fourth of July, you have the parade, and after the parade, it seems like you know the parade and the fireworks. It seems like that national pride kind of goes away, and you kind of move on to the family aspect with the barbecue and all that kind of stuff. Whereas here, for the seventeenth of May. There's this upbuilding to it over the last month, you know, the previous month. And then when the 17th of May comes here, it's that national pride is is there all day. And it, it's just, I don't know, I, I'm at a loss for words. I, I don't know how to explain it, but I, I just think it's a much more intense display of national pride here in Norway than there is on the 4th of July. It's very much a feeling of... of- uh, community, I think, whereas for yeah. July, it's a big parade, but then you get together with your individual family. And yeah. You get together with your family in, um, in Norway as well. Sure, sure. Uh, there's, this, there's this sense of that we are a people together that is so strong, and it's 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 really quite uh, fascinating. And, it is. And to experience. And um, I probably should mention, too, the 22nd of July, because this is the day this episode is going to air, from what I understand. And that was, uh, for me, a very terrible day, too. I had just returned from Norway um, after having performed in Frogner Park for the 4th of July. Yeah. And I remember sitting in my office uh, over at Microsoft and reading that news story uh and it really was one of those moments that it felt like 9-11 felt to be like yeah can really be true i uh 
I, I, I very much remember um, where I was and what I was doing, both uh, for 9-11 and then again here in Norway for the 22nd. Uh, it, 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 it's amazing how similar those feelings are. Um, it, it, it is. I would say there are really three major historical events where I felt that way. And the first one was when President Kennedy was assassinated. I think anyone alive at that time, even if you were only six years old, yeah. you remember exactly. You felt, you felt that, yeah, yeah. And it was the same with 9-11 and with the 22nd of July. I, that's That's how how much I really love Norway. Yeah. Um, it, it affected me profoundly and as, as it did all Norwegians. And well, Norway lost its innocence. Norway lost that, that, that feeling that they had. And I don't know if this feeling was naive, but I guess Norway felt like everyone loved them for their innocence you know the things that are happening in other countries aren't going to happen here and then all of a sudden it did right and right. Uh, it, it was just such a it was just such a huge loss it was a loss of life of course but also a loss of national innocence right i, I think what's important though is is the resilience and the coming together yeah um, there's always something good that can come out of something. And I, I look at what's going on in our country right now. We have several crises simultaneously. We have the COVID-19 crisis. We have a huge economic crisis as an offspin. We have the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, which is a manifestation of of decades, of centuries, mm. of suppression of the black people, and it's it's a lot to be going through. It is for all of us. But I guess my sense is with with the dialogue that's taking place now, with the coming to terms uh, on many levels, that something good is going to come out of this. Well, I think so. I think something good is definitely going to come out of it. I think something good has already. Uh, come out of it. Um, when I look, um, I would when I would watch the protests uh, in the first days and weeks after um, after George Floyd's killing, and I would look out in, among the protesters and I saw so many white faces, and that's something that we haven't really seen up until now. So to see that there were so many white people who were out in the streets protesting, uh, showing their allegiance, you know, becoming allies in the, this movement for racial equality and equal, uh, equal application of the law, equal protection of the law, it was no longer a black issue, it became a national issue. So already right there, I think we have gained so much. So much good has come out of this already. And I, I do believe in the intrinsic uh, good uh, in human beings that we all want yeah. the same thing when you get down to it. We, we all want to have the feeling that we're safe. Yeah. We want the feeling that we have the opportunity to build a good life for mm -hmm. ourselves 
at our families and our communities. Um, yeah, we all we all we have to keep that vision alive and work towards it actively. I think what's I think the message that's come out of a lot of this is that we can no longer be passive and just keep the status quo. That we have to keep working towards improvement, towards bettering our our society uh, from the individual level to the up to the community level and then to the larger level of a collective society. And then there's the whole question of the world working together. In my own lifetime, I've seen how we've become a global society. And yeah. that's something we can't forget, that we're, we're not isolated in how we deal with these uh, issues, that they affect all of us collectively. Well, what do you say to some of these American citizens who are so against this this global cooperation because they see it as a threat to our national identity. What do you say to those people? I, I would say we really don't have a choice uh, to not participate in the global community. This is, this is the world that we live in. And um, to not participate is to be left behind. I would say, I would say that too. I would say that too. That we have a responsibility to participate, um, and it's it's just it is the world we live in. It's what's going to make us thrive and make us safe. Yeah, and secure our future for our children. Do you think that we have to have a different administration in the White House in order for that positive change to occur? Well, I, I try not to get too political. Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I try not. Well, see, I, I'm laughing, but, but in all seriousness, you know, I, I try not to get too. I don't even like that word political. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I can say I don't want to make this po- my podcast into a political podcast, but I do want to feel free and I want my guests to feel free to talk about the important things that are happening in their lives. Right. And 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 in these days of COVID-19, in these days of (laughs) the administration that we have, it is affecting American lives in a way that politics hasn't affected American lives before. So I, I that was a rather pointed political question that I asked you, but I think is quite relevant considering the times. Considering the times. What I don't want to see happen is to have dialogue shut down. It's and and that's happening way too much on both sides of the political spectrum. I love a great discussion. I even like a good argument, but to me, to argue does not mean that there is this this um, this this hatred and animosity that comes with it. Right. To me, an argument is just a thorough discussion where the two parts disagree. And I think that should be okay. But for some reason, most people don't think that's okay. They don't feel like they can discuss, disagree, or argue without throwing insults Um without cursing out the other the other the other side um without name calling and things like that where where did that come from because that has not been normal for our country 
I, I don't this is really new. know. I mean, the worst of it is to even obliterate the other opinion. The most important thing to affect change is it's it's a it's dialogue, it's discussion, it's problem solving. Um, it, whether you're on the left or the right, you've got to listen to each other. Yeah. And I mean, this all didn't come out of nowhere. Um, well, some people have landed on the right and some people landed on the left. And if they don't try to understand each other, we're not going to be able to meet in the middle and move forward. Well, um, some, somehow people got hung up on what is left and what is right. And they forgot about what is right and what is wrong. That, that's a great way of putting it. Um, Somehow that happened. Somehow, somehow we got to this point. Well, it may have something to do with the media, unfortunately, too. Um, well, I can remember I think working as a journalist, even for a small newspaper like the Norwegian American. I think verifying facts is extremely important. Yeah. Uh, maintaining a editorial policy that is not overtly biased towards one side or the other. Do you guys have a chat section in your newspaper online? We don't. Okay. Is that, is that because things are so polarized now you want to avoid any Uh, platform where people can start throwing insults back and forth? I, I feel that we don't have on our website, we don't really have the capacity to monitor, monitor that type of discussion there. We do have a Facebook page where there's a certain amount of discussion that goes on but what we do have is we have an op-ed section where um readers can contribute their opinions uh letters to the editor and we don't censor them okay uh, beyond where they can't contain uh language that would incite violence or be inappropriate somehow and um how, how many staff write? Discussion going. I'm sorry. Say again. Want to keep the discussion going? Sure, sure, absolutely. And, and I guess if you had an open chat forum, very quickly that could very quickly lead to uh, minimal discussion and a large amount of <laughs> trading insults. Yeah. I think it's important if you have that that you have the resources to monitor monitor it and um so that it just doesn't become these flippant insults there um which unfortunately we see a lot of uh in social media these days and there has to be fact checking and um fairness well fact checking and fairness um I'd like to see fact checking in the presidential presidential debates when they start up. Um, They're talking about having a fact checker there present at the debate. That would be interesting. That would be interesting. I would say that it's important uh, that people get solid information. I think people have been misled so often for so long that they don't know what the truth is anymore. They hear their favorite politician speak and they just take it in. They don't it's a lot to sort through or as you said, you know, it's easy to put yourself in an echo chamber. Yeah. 
which is the last thing we need to do if we really want to solve problems and affect change. Well, speaking of echo, as we were talking earlier, I'm in my studio and there's no echo here. I've got my got my oh, tapestries sorry. and sound panels up. <laughs> I think I heard a phone ring here in the background. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. Hey, that's okay. Oh, I'm in my home office here right now, but. Um... <laughs> Well, listen, Lorianne, I have enjoyed uh, this little chat with you. I uh, I think you have a fantastic newspaper over there. Uh, I want to see you guys do well. I think you are a very important resource, both for Norwegian Americans there in, in the United States, but also for Norwegians here. Um, um, let's see what we can do together to help Norwegians here to know what your newspaper is doing over there. That would be wonderful. And I, I'd love to hear from them. You know, a lot of our uh, news leads come directly yeah. from our region. So let's, let's keep the, the dialogue open there. Let's keep the dialogue open. This has been interesting. Thank you, John Allen. Ah, okay, Lorianne. All right, everybody. Bye. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Yes, I am, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Lord, I'm coming home.